You came from the outside. You bring disorder here. The danger to you is Corby. I was programmed by Corby. I cannot harm him. The old ones programmed you too. But it became possible to destroy them. That was the equation. Existence. Survival must cancel out programming. Bridge to all deaths. It is time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I'm fascinated by this episode we're going to get into because I'm looking at it, as always, in a really different way from how I used to see it. I love rewatching these episodes because after all these years of just dissecting and reading so many books about the making of the original Star Trek series, Knowing that we're going to get into a conversation, rewatching the episode, taking notes while I'm doing it, I, I, I've already started thinking about the episode in ways that I've never thought about them before. And this particular episode is an episode that I like more than I thought I did, but it's also an episode that ties into a conversation, a conversation that we had on the second episode that I ever did of the cinephiles, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to that later in this show. It's funny, I'm realizing there's this category of Star Trek episodes where I think they are good and I always like them, but I didn't seek them out, you know, for whatever reason. And this is one of them. And watching it this last time I went, wow, there's so much here. It's so well made. And I, I wanna tell you about a, a, a way I'm approaching these that is very different. Uh, in terms of just the whole series. And I'm very curious of where this is going to go, a way I've been thinking. And here's what it is, is that basically the way I've always thought of Star Trek, and particularly of Captain Kirk, is that Captain Kirk is Captain Kirk. He is who he is when we meet him, and he continues to be the same person until we get maybe even to motion picture and Wrath of Khan, where he does go through some character things. And suddenly I went, this time, what if I think of him as a person who is developing and where it first came up was I asked the question in Naked Time, how is it that Captain Kirk is the one person that can overcome this, this thing, whatever it is, in order to get control of himself and save the Enterprise? And I went, you know what it is? Is that he went through the enemy within. Is that because of his experience of being split in two and having to use his force of will to bring those two halves back together, he has a skill that nobody else has, just as Spock has a skill of being a divided person as well. And so they're the people that overcome it. And there's things in this episode where I went, well, if I think about the naked time and enemy within that affect the decisions that Kirk makes in this episode. And so that's one of the kind of exciting totally new way I'm trying to analyze Star Trek. Well, it's interesting that you brought up being split in two in The Enemy Within, because in this episode, Kirk is split into two, sort of, and there's two of him, but is he really being split into two? And is that second Kirk a full replicant of the original? Yes, I dropped in that word. That's an because that word. ties into, yes, an <laughs> interesting word, because uh, hmm, I think that's uh, one of the directions that this conversation is going to go. But you know what, Steve, like over the years, I actually did seek out what a little girl's made of, not because I thought the writing was really great or or when I think of like just the top tier, the top tier Star Trek episodes like Balance of Terror 
or sitting on the edge of forever or the doomsday machine. You know, those are top, top tier episodes. Right. I look at this episode as a second tier episode of Star Trek, but a second tier episode from the first season is still a mighty great episode specifically because this is still early into the first season where the show was still finding its way. But the main reason, Steve, that I sought this episode out because I think more than any other episode produced up to this point, what are little girls made of establishes a mood. There is a mood. There is an atmosphere to this episode, the pacing, the suspense, and so much of that mood is established by the cinematography of Jerry Finnerman, the way he lit the caverns and the catacombs of Planet XO3. I'll put this episode episode on late at night, and I'll mm. turn out on. I'll, I'll turn off all of the lights, and I'll just be looking at this moving work of art. It is a beautiful episode to look at. And after watching it again, it is also an amazing episode to really dive into. This is an episode that is much more cerebral than I yeah. ever gave credit for. I, I, I actually slap in my head watching the episode <laughs> because I'm listening to the dialogue, especially towards the end of this episode. And I'm thinking, how is it that I never made this connection before between what are little girls made of and my favorite movie of all time. And that is Blade Runner. But what are little girls made of aired on October 20th, 1966. It was the seventh episode to air, but it was actually the 10th episode to film. It was filmed between July 28th and August 9th, 1966. This episode actually took eight full production days to film. That meant that it was two days over schedule. In the first season of the original series, the episodes were allotted six production days. Anything over that was over time and also over budget. And this episode went a full two days over schedule. Now it was directed by James Goldstone and If that name sounds familiar, James Goldstone, it should because, Steve, he directed one of your all-time favorite episodes, and it's an episode that we already talked about. Do you know what it is? Is it Where No Man Has Gone Before? That is correct, my friend. Yes. James Goldstone not only directed a great episode, he directed the second pilot, the first pilot with Kirk, and a, a pilot that is actually just a great episode. But because the episode, this one, did go two days over budget, uh, over schedule rather, he was not invited back to direct another episode. And the only reason he did come back for this episode was because Robert H. Justman and Gene Roddenberry knew going into it that it was a problematic screenplay and they needed someone that they knew to handle the unknown. And that of course was Goldstone because the second pilot was very, very unknown. Now the writer for this episode was Robert Block. And Roddenberry was so thrilled to have a noted, respected author writing an episode of Star Trek. Now, do you know what Robert Block wrote? The book that he wrote 
that was an adapt- it was adapted into an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Can you guess? Ooh, an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, trying to think about what would be in that era. Either The Birds or Psycho. Oh, you are so good, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> so Robert Block actually wrote the book of Psycho. Uh, Stefano wrote the screenplay. But Robert Block wrote the book of Psycho. And as it turns out, this episode, What Are Little Girls Made Of?, is the first of three Star Trek episodes mm. that Block wrote. The other two being Cat's Paw and Wolf in the Fold, which is an awesome episode. Interesting. From Interesting. the second season. Yeah, yeah. Especially Cat's Paw, which was the first episode that they filmed for season two. Uh, man, when we get into talking about <laughs> season two, Steve, oh, that's <laughs> going to be awesome. <laughs> so, so this episode cost $211,061. The first season budget per episode was 193500 This one was 211061 wow. Not only was it $17,561 over budget, but it is, not including the two pilots, this is the most, the third, the third most expensive episode of Star Trek ever produced over those three seasons. Wow. And look, I mean, you look, look at the set, look at the yeah. lighting, look, look at it, look at the, uh, the Android making a machine. All that stuff was very, very expensive. Now, Fred Steiner returned to score this episode. It was his fifth of 12 Star Trek scores that he composed. But there's a, there's a little footnote in that it was a partial score. Right. You know, you've seen the episode. So you're, you know that most of the music cues actually came from other episodes, like uh, especially Where No Man Has Gone Before. But some of the music was new, particularly Andrea's theme and Ruck's music. That All that stuff was new. And that was recorded on September 20th, 1966, the same day that Fred Steiner recorded his scores for the Corbomite Maneuver and Balance of terror. Wow. That's a lot of music to record in one day. And, and it's <laughs> yeah. funny thinking about, you know, why a show might've gone over schedule and over budget. And the first thing that you said that is probably the biggest reasons is skip script problems. Mm-hmm. A director needs to plan out their day. They have to have a shot list and there's a way of shooting where you can bang out a lot of material if you're really well organized and planned ahead. But if you get a script change a half hour before you're supposed to shoot, or even worse, if you're waiting on script changes, which I know happens sometimes, then man, that'll slow you way, way down. Um, So in addition to a bunch of new sets, in addition to some characters with some serious makeup on Ruck, mm, script changes is going to be a real problem in terms of your schedule and your budget. Well, it's amazing. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Ruck because, like, look at the contrast between Ruck, between Ted Cassidy's wardrobe and his makeup, and then look at Sherry Jackson as Andrea, her wardrobe, which, wow, is still amazing. William Werthice, uh, his uh, his wardrobe uh, was was really, really fantastic. Now, this episode was a very had, – had had a troubled – script development in the sense that Roddenberry was, again, he was thrilled that, oh my gosh, the the writer of the psycho book is writing an episode of Star Trek. This is exactly what I wanted. 
when I when I invited all these noted authors to write episodes of Star Trek. But it really is a case of be careful what you wish for, because Roddenberry and Bob Justman kept sending all these notes back and forth to each other after they would get in a new draft saying, yeah, like, this isn't great. Like, the dialogue is stilted. It feels too contrived. Now, Robert Block's story outline was dated March 19th, 1966. By the time he got to his second draft teleplay, that came almost two months later on May 6th. John D.F. Black, who was not thrilled with Roddenberry by this point because of all the rewrites he did on The Naked Time, John D.F. Black did a second script polish dated June 15th. Roddenberry did a couple of rewrites, and his second rewrite, his revised final draft, was dated July 27, 1966. But there's more. Okay. Part of the reason that this episode went two days over schedule is because even as the episode was being filmed, Roddenberry was typing up new script pages, which caused a delay in the production. And that's why it went so far over schedule. See, see? I, I, you know, it's, it's funny having been around sets a, a fair amount of time as you can kind of go, you kind of deduce what might have been the problem. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But but it's interesting because, like, you know, you're watching an episode like this. And, again, nothing like Star Trek had ever been done. And right. you watch an episode like this. And, again, not the greatest episode, but it's still really damn good. And you go, wow, what kind of, what kind of problems would they have had? Now, have you ever wondered what writers got paid for to write I, for television in the sixties? I 60s. would love to know. Tell me what is it? What is a writer's rate? Your your mind is going to be blown. I could not believe that this is how little writers got paid to write for television in the sixties. So at Star Trek and at other TV shows around that same time in sixty six, a writer was paid six hundred and fifty five dollars. Oh, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be that low. Okay, wait, wait. So, so $655 for the first draft of a story outline. So that was the first uh, payment. The second payment went up a little bit to $695. And that's when the writer was told to proceed to teleplay. Basically, he's being told, okay, go write the screenplay. So Robert Block delivered his first draft script he got $1,800 for that. So when the final writer's draft was delivered and it was actually accepted, Robert Block got paid a fourth and final time, this time of $1,350. So he got four incremental payments, still not a whole lot of money, not even not even adjusted for inflation by today's standards. I mean, writers get paid a whole lot more today yeah. than than they ever did. But and this guy wrote Psycho, and that's all he got paid wow. to write to write this episode of Star Trek. And you know, one of the things that that I've always loved, in addition to to Star Trek, is the '60s. And the '60s, like you can just feel the the country, the United States, and the world in general. Like between 1963 and 1970, the U.S. aged like 100 years because so much was going on. So during the time that this episode was being filmed, between late July and the beginning of August, wait till you hear this history. So on July 29th, 
Bob Dylan was injured in a motorcycle accident near his home in Woodstock, New York, and he would not be seen in public again for over a year. Wow. Are you a Dylan fan? I am uh, a, a somewhat of a Dylan fan. I have never done deep dives into Dylan. Like this, you know, so I know I love all the stuff that I love, but I don't have a stack of Dylan albums. Yeah, I have the stuff from the 60s. I yeah. never really, uh, uh, you know, and I have Oh Mercy, which I think came out in like 89 or 90. Mm. So, so also, so the very next day on July 30th, the United States began its very first bombing of the six mile wide demilitarized zone the neutral mm-hmm. zone, uh, between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And then on August 1st, this is really interesting, 43 people were shot, 13 of them fatally, by Charles Whitman, a student at oh, the University Texas. of Texas yeah. at yeah. Austin from the tower. Yeah. That that's happened. The, that's the really the first of, I, I think, of a mass shooting in the sense of what we experience today is that incident in Texas. Um, and it just is such a terrifying moment. In, and this is what, you know, what you say about the 60s is so true. And there's so much upheaval and so much fear and so much change happening so quickly, yeah. you know, and right at this time that these episodes are being made. And if like, you know, if you're, if you're William Shatner, you're Gene Roddenberry, you're Michelle Nichols, you know, you're driving to work in the morning and you're, you're listening to the news maybe on AM radio, and this is what you're hearing. And it's no wonder with all the news that was going on, that so much of it made its way either overtly or subtly into stories of Star Trek as, as it should. So then on August 2nd, radio station WAQYAM in Birmingham, Alabama, became the first radio station to urge listeners to boycott the Beatles. Oh, because John, they're, yep. because they're bigger than Jesus. Okay. And, yeah. and, and and by the way, I think you meant to say they were taller than Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bigger. And then finally on August 5th, this is really interesting, that the first groundbreaking took place in New York City on the site that would soon become the World Trade Center. Wow. Wow. It's it's so crazy because in my mind, the, the time period that Star Trek exists is the mid-70s for me because that's when I started watching it. And to go like, oh, no, they I, I love that image of these actors and writers driving to work and these things going on in the world. And it, it makes sense why Star Trek was embraced by a certain generation of people, you know, because it was doing something that was – so different and so connected to the world. And and ser- even though there are episodes that are very fun and silly, Star Trek is a serious show dealing with some serious stuff, including in this episode. Did you ever get into Lost in Space? Sure. I totally watched Lost in Space when I was a kid. I haven't watched an episode of Lost in Space probably since I turned 18. What about you? Uh, I liked it when I was a kid, but let's just say I, I do not envision you and I doing a deep dive no. week by week episode podcast on Lost in Space. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the difference. And then I know we were taking a long time before we actually get to the episode. But the but you, the difference is, I so I was a big comic book fan. I worked in a comic book store in the late 80s. Um, like I was working in a comic book store when 89 Batman came out. Oh, man. And, what was interesting in the way Hollywood approached comics then was they went, comic books are written for kids. They are stupid kid stuff. 
So when we make a movie, we're going to make a stupid kid movie. That's lost in space. Sci-fi is for children. They're silly. So when we make a sci-fi thing, we will make something stupid and silly for kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is not what Star Trek is. Absolutely not. And just just to, to be watching television in 1966, 67, and 68, you know, those were the, those were the years that Star Trek overlapped uh, with Lost in Space because Lost in Space started in 65 and ended in 68, and Star Trek started in 66 and ended in 69. So the title for what are little girls made of came from a 19th century nursery rhyme. What are little girls made of? Sugar and spice and everything nice. By the way, one more small thing that I had never looked up before, What's but that? Uh, you probably already knew this. I never looked up what was playing before and after Star Trek. What was the lead in and what followed? And at least on this page that I'm looking at, and I'm not sure if this is in, in 66 or not, is Daniel Boone, then Star Trek, then Dragnet. Wow, wow, wow. Think about the that change, like the distance between I totally watched Daniel Boone as a kid. I might I watched remember watching Dragnet with my parents. Like, but to sandwich Star Trek between those two shows, that is just crazy. You have a Western and you have a science fiction series, and then you have a cop show. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Shall we enter into the world of what little girls are made of? Let's go. So we're in the teaser, and right away we start in a sort of a strange angle on the helm. And and the thing you notice at first is there's someone on the bridge who you wouldn't expect, and that is Nurse Chapel. I know he's alive down there, Captain. What I love about that moment is that we immediately start with mystery. We immediately start with there's something going on here. Something interesting is happening. Um, and we hear a little bit from Spock about the planet. So, so the woman on the bridge... So she's familiar to us now because even though we're we're going in production order, the episode that that Nurse Chapel made her first appearance in was actually The Naked Time. That that was filmed before this episode. It also aired before this right. episode. In The Naked Time, she was pining over Spock. Now, a few episodes later, she's pining over her lost fiance, Roger Corby. Now, Dr. Corby, often called the Pasteur of archaeological medicine. And I found that really interesting, Scott, the idea that there are all these civilizations that have ceased to exist throughout the galaxy. They might have technology that we can use to heal people, and that's what Roger Corby has done. I think it's really interesting. His last signal told about finding underground caverns. And since then, two expeditions have failed to find it. In the earlier versions that go back to when Robert Block was submitting his first drafts, it was not Nurse Chapel. It was a wealthy woman named Margo was on that bridge. And she hired, hired the wow. Enterprise to look for her estranged fiance. And later she went from being Corby's fiance to Corby's wife. But it was Roddenberry who suggested changing Margo to Christine Chapel. And uh, of course, they were they they were involved. So uh, he figured out a way to bring her back after he he couldn't bring back number one from the cage. Right. So he cast Majel as Nurse Chapel. This is a great tip for screenwriters out there: is that 
always have an emotional element. Like you, this could have totally been, we're trying to contact this scientist. We've lost touch with them. And Kirk goes down and we have an adventure. And you could totally tell that story. But adding the Nurse Chapel character who has the previous relationship adds an emotional element that we're going to follow throughout this episode. And it also, when we get to the end, is one of the things I don't think this episode delivers on. Um, but there's this long extended moment where it's like, probably not going to hear from them. And then, of course, at the most dramatic time... Enterprise. Come in, Enterprise. This is Roger Corby. Repeating, this is Dr. Roger Corby. Standing by. The way the signal comes in, the way that Corby's voice sounds, this echo, something sinister about it, scary almost, like it's chilling... And that brings us to the end of that teaser. So we come back in act one. And of course, there are two things going on here. One is there's Roger Corby, who's this long lost guy and the enterprise has to deal with him. And we're talking about landing parties. And the other thing is the emotional component is that we have Christine Chapel, who's hearing the voice of her long lost love. So they just get there. They've established this contact. It's supposed to be a really, really happy moment. And the first thing that Corby says to Captain Kirk is, You beam down alone, just yourself discoveries of such a nature they may require an extraordinary decision from you it is an unusual request you're certain you'd recognize his voice have you ever been engaged mr spock so this is why the idea of thinking of these stories in continuity with characters that have backstories and are evolving i don't think they were thinking this when they made the show i think they were just trying to make this episode but we know based on this that Nurse Chapel was a student of Roger Corby. We were going to find out later in the episode. They had a relationship. They got engaged. And at a certain point, she chose to go on the Enterprise rather than probably go with him on this scientific mission. And then Roger Corby disappears. And that is when she starts to fall in love with Mr. Spock. Right. Because she's had no contact with the guy she was engaged with. And so her in the naked time revealing her feelings, maybe she never expressed them because it relates to the fact that her fiance has disappeared. And now when she's saying, have you ever been engaged to Mr. Spock? She's saying this to a guy she also has professed her love for, which I think is really interesting. Hello, Roger. Christine. I had no idea, no hope. Darling, are you all right? Yes, Roger. Everything is all right now. And then there's something, and again, it's because I'm looking at this episode and really observing it in a different way. Two interesting things happen next. The first is, is that there are two people standing behind Kirk and Chapel, and it's a, a white guy and an African-American woman. And they're standing very close to each other and they're smiling and watching it this time. I went, I think they're a couple. I think they are enjoying hearing this romantic reunion, I think that James Goldstone looked at them and gave them a little direction as background actors. And the other interesting thing that happens, which I never paid that much attention before, is when they get up to leave, Uhura gives Chapel a hug. And it's such a like, you're going to see the man you love. I'm so happy for you. This is so great. It's a tiny little detail, but it's a really nice one. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're establishing a kinship among mm-hmm. among crew members. So Uhura and Chapel hug each other and Chapel's walking off the bridge and she's just like on cloud nine. And then Spock is sitting in the command chair and he's curious. <laughs> he's suspicious. Now, this is an episode where not only do we not get to see a whole lot of Mr. Spock, because 
early in the first season, it was still William Shatner's show. It was still right. Captain Kirk's show. Spock was still very much a supporting player. And even though his contributions to this episode are very crucial, we don't see a lot of him. And you know who we don't see any of? We don't see any of McCoy, no Scotty, no Sulu, no Rand. And this is one, this is actually one of three episodes in which uh, regular season episodes, not pilots, where we do not get to see Dr. McCoy. So it was wow. this episode, Errand of Mercy, and part two of the menagerie in which uh, McCoy did not appear. So I thought that was interesting. So we beam down to the planet. We see we're on some kind of ice world. We're inside a room that has like a glass wall to protect us from the weather outside and no Roger Corby. We call no Roger Corby. So Kirk, and I like this, if we're following specific procedure, we said we would beam down alone, but there's something weird going on. So he calls for two security guys to come down. The security guys can, uh, show up. He tells one of them to maintain a post here and the other one's gonna come down with them. They start heading down through these caves that are really well lit. They're mm. really cool design. The, there's creepy music, it's tense. Is a really interesting camera choice where it pans to Kirk and then he walks through the frame and Chapel comes into the frame. It's all really well done. And then Chapel almost falls. We have the classic Kirk saves her and the rock that falls forever because this pit is almost bottomless. This this setup is so well done. The suspense. And talk about uh, a series that had a very limited budget, but really extended it. They've really made the money count. The dramatic lighting, the shadows, the color gels. Like you're really establishing, okay, this is an alien world. It's just amazing how Jerry Finnerman like made that set look. And I have to say that what our little girls made of is one of the two very best lit episodes. Hmm of the series, the cinematography in this episode and also in Metamorphosis is absolutely gorgeous. No other episode looks quite like this one. You know, Goldstone, Finnerman, everyone was at the top of their game here. And speaking of the lighting, there's a music sting and suddenly a bright light. And a figure steps into frame silhouetted. And of course, Christine thinks, that this must be Roger. And she starts to go to them. Kirk stops her yes. and draws his phaser. Is this the first appearance of the type one phaser? I think you're right. I think actually it is the first appearance of, of the phaser one, which was the little bit that stuck into the top of the phaser pistol, phaser two. Uh, yeah, okay, hold, on, hold, right. on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I literally never knew that. That, that a phaser one is part of a phaser type two? Oh my God, Steve. I never knew that. Yeah, if you look at if you look at the top of the phaser two, the phaser pistol, that thing in the top, that's the phaser one. The phaser one actually fits into the top of of uh, of phaser two. Do we ever see them actually doing that? Where they? Take I think it okay. I think in the enemy within, there actually is a scene when on the planet when Sulu is heating the rocks. You actually mm. see him. For a split second, you see him put phaser one into phaser two, and then he heats the rocks for, for warmth. 
but it's uh, it, it goes by so fast. It's easy. It's easy to miss. I can't believe this is a thing I didn't know. So, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so Chapel thinks that this is Roger Corby, but it's not. And we and the light goes off and we hear his voice and she goes, oh, that's Dr. Brown. It's Roger's assistant. And she goes to him. And right at that moment, we hear a scream <laughs> and they look down. And there is no Matthews. The security guard that came with them has disappeared. And you see this character, this alien move away. And this is Ruck, Ted Cassidy, who I think watching this time, he is amazing. He's like, I wish this guy had more of an actual acting career because what he does in this episode is fantastic. Absolutely. Ted Cassidy was absolutely spectacular, gave a phenomenal performance as Ruck in this episode. You know, his wardrobe by Bill Tice and his makeup, the makeup that they used on him, courtesy of legendary Fred Phillips. So, of course, everybody knows Ted Cassidy as being Lurch from the Adams family. You're right. But while he was filming What Are Little Girls Made Of?, he also recorded the voiceover for Baylock in the Corbomite Maneuver. And Matthews, the security guard who falls down the hole, the bottomless pit, he was the first, the first red shirt to die <laughs> in a Star Trek episode. That first is- of many. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder how many conventions he got to go to and sign autographs just because of that, that half-day work that he probably did. Um, Everybody has their firsts. Yeah. And Brown's response to the death of this crewman is very, very stilted. Unfortunate. Terribly unfortunate. Totally emotionless and immediately turns to just, just talking about business. Christine is like looking at him going, don't you recognize me? Because, of course, we're going to find out that this guy is an android and that you can almost see the wheels turning as he brings up the data from his database and says, Christine, you look well. His dead performance is really, really interesting. And here is a question I have for you. Yes. So, again, you know, we're spoiling the episode. You know, this is a 55-year-old piece of television. (laughs) Brown is an android, and later on we're going to see how androids were made. My question is, what is Brown? Because what we learn later on is that you put the two people on the spinny thing, you put a person on the spinny thing and a dummy on the spinny thing, and you spin it around, it takes the shape of the person, and then you do another thing to give it the memories, and then you could also do a third thing to actually transfer the soul of the person, their actual identity, into the android body. Mm-hmm. Brown clearly has no emotions, so they didn't do the third thing. How did? What is he? Was Brown alive and they transferred his memories or did they not understand the technology enough to transfer the soul or had Brown already died and Roger created a fake Brown in order to have a companion that looked like the guy that he lost? Well, that's, that's a great question. So clearly Brown was someone who existed before they even went to XO3 because Chapel knew him, you know, and he, and he knows Chapel. But when you, when you look at the other, the other manufactured Android who, who was created from scratch. And then you look at, look at spoiler or Corby, who by right. all intents and purposes seems perfectly human, just maybe a little off his rocker, but right. 
he he certainly has more emotion. He's much more expressive than than Brown is. So, but the like that's that they not have the the mechanism down. That they not have it all figured out. Was he close to death? Was he so close to death that something just got lost in translation in the transfer? That's very very possible because Chapel realizes right away something is off with him, yep. but she doesn't sense anything different about Roger when she when she right. sees him. Well, frankly, Andrea and Ruck are far more human-like than Brown is. Um, but we've lost this guy, and so Kirk calls up the other security guy, Rayburn, who is up at the mouth of the cave, and gives him some instructions. And as he's doing this, man, we see Ruck sneaking up behind. And the moment Kirk gets off, he grabs Rayburn by the face, kills him, and the camera tilts up to Ruck's face. And it is scary and intimidating. Mm-hmm. Ruck is a great, great antagonist, I think. Absolutely. And interesting, like when when uh, Kirk is talking to Rayborn, the, the uh, second yeah. security guard, you know, he was standing there all just kind of relaxed, just kind of like leaning against against a stalagmite or something. And when Kirk says, uh, we lost Matthews, you see him like get stand at attention. Like he looks around, like he gets nervous yeah. and he has every right to be because he's about to meet his maker. Cause <laughs> Ruck just takes care of him. We hear a little bit of detail from Brown that the culture here, they fled underground when it started to cold, get colder. And then he says this thing that. When you were a student of his Christie, you must've often heard Dr. Corby remark how freedom of movement, choice produced the human spirit. This culture proves his theory. When they move from lightness to dark, they replaced freedom with mechanistic culture. I think this very much parallels things like the Telosians, where they went underground, and, and for them it wasn't technology, for them it was these mental powers, but the idea of the advanced culture that takes a wrong turn and then stagnates. And that's what here we are with another one. Then we hear that Dr. Corby has found some stuff that's really exciting. We go into this room. I think it's a really, really weird design choice that we're in these caves, which have these like, I don't know, 19th century wooden furnishings, including like Persian rugs and stuff. And I never bumped on it as a kid, but watching now, I'm like, man, that's an odd design choice that they yeah, went yeah. for. Yeah, there's actually style to it. Yeah. Like, I guess they brought enough stuff with them where they were like, we're going to be here a while. Let's make it look like home. <laughs> or, or, or this culture is just parallel to Earth and happened to have some of the same kind of antique stuff. I don't know. <laughs> um, they get into these quarters and in walks Andrea. Okay. Uh, Sherry Jackson. Wow. I mean, <laughs> wow. Definitely one of the sexiest females to grace the original series. She started acting when she was six years old. And when she was younger, she had a recurring recurring role in the Ma and Pa Kettle films. And then for about five years, she played daughter Terry on the Danny Thomas show. And she also mm. guest starred in Lost in Space and The Twilight Zone. But safe to say her, her head-turning role in this episode is still the stuff of legend again. Bill Tice, his wardrobe design, uh, left nothing to the imagination, and we are grateful for it. (laughs) I really wonder how these actresses felt at this time wearing these particular kinds of outfits. I mean, I don't think there's, I don't know of any show on television at this time that was as revealing as Star Trek. 
Um, and immediately, Chapel's, you know, oh, she's like, jealous. Look at her, like, who person? is this? <laughs> I don't remember Dr. Corby mentioning an Andrea. But you are exactly as Roger described you. No wonder he missed you so. Where is Dr. Corby? Here, yeah, Captain. And there's a whip pan on the camera, and there is Dr. Corby. He sees Chapel. They see each other. They kiss. It is the same music, I think, as the women transforming in Mud's Women, I think, um, that they're reusing here. Then Brown says, The captain lost a man in the caverns, Doctor. Okay, now um, this is interesting. This is interesting. When Brown says that, and then Corby says, uh, What? How did it happen? Kirk is about to answer him, and Brown interrupts him. The pit near the outer junction. The edge must have given way. And Kirk, like, shoots Brown a look, and then he darts back to Corby, like, so, like he's suspicious, and he should be. Like, but he is, he's already suspicious. Well, this is one of the things that I've noticed watching it this time, and in this way, is Kirk as the observer. Because I just never paid so much attention to the reaction shots when they cut to Shatner, is that he is observing, he is listening, he is constantly thinking, and he is, you're right, definitely, definitely suspicious. And now we have sort of almost a parallel conversation because he's trying to call Rayburn and Corby wants him to wait because he has other things to talk about. And Kirk, of course, is now, now I've lost contact with two guards. Yeah, I got to call my ship. And what does Brown do? Pulls the phaser on. No communications, Captain. Now, the whole point of Corby wanting Kirk to beam down alone, this is why. Roger, that man. He won't be harmed, I promise you. This was supposed to be a beautiful moment, the reunion of of two people who, two lovers who were going to get married. And now uh, the stakes have, have gotten very, very high. Isn't it possible there could be things here unknown to you, so terribly important? Sir, one man is dead. I've lost contact with the other. And this should be a first clue that something is wrong with Roger Corby because he, even though Brown has pulled a, a gun on Kirk, even though one guy has definitely died and maybe two, from what we hear about Roger Corby later on, he should be really upset. And he should be saying to Brown, no, put down the gun. We don't pull guns on people. He, that's what should be happening. But that's not what's happening. And Corby sends Andrea to take away Kirk's phaser. And he grabs her, uses her as a shield, takes the phaser, and does a entirely unnecessary roll uh, <laughs> to get the behind Kirk the table. Roll. It totally <laughs> is, but in this case, it's like he's and he's rolling. The table's not even solid; like it's not any protection at all. Yeah, it's, it's not a good it's, shield. <laughs> it's not a but. And then he shoots Brown with the phaser. And man, when Ruck comes in and picks. Kirk up. Oh, he picks him up like it's nobody's business. Like there's no effort on the part of Ruck. He just picks him up like he's a he's a piece of paper and puts him up against the wall. And the look that Kirk gives back to Brown when he realizes, and this is how we end the first act, that he is a machine. He is an android. Shot him in the stomach. And what what's what we see are these burned and fused circuits. Act two. Kirk is calling back to the Enterprise. We were becoming concerned, Captain. Your check-in was overdue, and since we'd not heard from your security team. No problem, Mr. Spock. Bear with me. And then we cut to Kirk, 
who, while we're hearing his voice, is not speaking. And then we cut to Ruck speaking with Kirk's voice. By the way, Ted Cassidy does a beautiful job lip syncing this stuff. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and there's two there's two ways you can do this. Either Ted Cassidy just said the lines on set and you go into ADR, which is where you do looping, and Shatner and the other actors do the voice to match Ted Cassidy's lips, or they pre-record their voices and Ted Cassidy's lip syncing them. I think it's the latter, but there's actually, you could do it either way. And so now we learn that Ruck has this power to imitate voices and we hear him do Corby's voice. And then he does Christine's voice. And Corby is not happy with that. You are not to mock Christine. You will never harm her. Or disobey an order from her. You will not disobey her orders. Satisfied, Captain Kirk? What's great about this is that we said that Kirk was an observer and now he makes his first move. And this is the this is the trickster element of Kirk, the guy who's thinking, who's strategizing. He sees a moment of weakness and he go and he inserts something or disobey an order from her. Give me 24 hours to convince you. Doctor, do I need to be a prisoner to be convinced? And then Corby says what he thinks would happen if Kirk just returned to his vessel. He would report and then a whole bunch of great discoveries would be tossed because of superstition and ignorance. Which, by the way, I don't see that as something that the Enterprise or the Federation actually does. I think they probably would say, wow, these are pretty amazing discoveries. I don't think they would just toss them. But, okay, that's well, what well, Corby the, thinks. The, the interesting thing is, like, when I was rewatching this episode, so, so Corby sees something that's going on on this planet. And he says, wow, this is so great. This is something that we should, we should learn and basically take for ourselves. And it reminded me of the late second season episode, The Omega Glory, mm. where Captain Ron Tracy sees right. that these natives are living like, like for so long. And, and he tries to figure out how that can benefit him so he can also live long. So Roger Corby has now seen this uh, civilization left over by the old ones on Exo 3. And he says kind of like the same thing. Oh, my God, this is so great. I have to use this for myself. So there's actually a parallel, uh, mm. a common theme, a common motive between Dr. Roger Corby in this episode and Captain Ron Tracy in the Omega Glory. Well, I think this is this is as classic a sci-fi thing theme as you possibly can have, which is the misuse of technology, going back literally to the very first sci-fi story, which is Frankenstein. The other thing I think is interesting about this is, again, spoiler alert, Roger Corby is also an android. He is a person whose soul has been transferred entirely into this android. But the question I have is, if Roger Corby were human... How many of these decisions would he have made? Would he have said, come down alone? Would he have allowed Brown to pull the gun? Would he, or is all of these things that he's doing partially become, because he is not actually Roger Corby. He doesn't have Roger Corby's soul. He only believes that he has Roger Corby's soul. He, he believes that he does. But as we see later in the episode, he is not able to do the things that only a human can do. Like with Brown in some ways, the, the transfer from being a human to being an android 
it, it clouded his judgment, certainly clouded his judgment and clouded his motive. But it also go, goes very much into a bigger theme, which of course is what does it mean to be human? Yep. And that is something that as this episode plays out, that theme becomes becomes more uh, prevalent and rises to the fore. And Kirk wants to know what happened to his crewmen. And what we find out is that Ruck was programmed to protect and that he was just following his programming and that, in fact, both of the crewmen are dead. Totally against my wishes, I assure you. He's an android, like Brown. And for the first time, we hear that voice. More complex than Brown. Much superior. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so it's so wild. Like when you hear him talk, because up to this point, like when he killed off the two security guards and when he was uh, mocking the other, when he was mocking uh, Christine and and Andrea, like now you're hearing Ruck talk for the first time. And it's he just looked and sounded like a great alien. It's not just a deep voice. Like there are a lot of people with deep voices. You know, James Earl Jones has a deep voice. This voice is like. It's Ted Cassidy. Like only he speaks this way. Um, And we hear that he was left here by the old ones and he was still tending the machinery when uh, Roger showed up and he doesn't even know how long ago that was. And again, we have the trickster Kirk moment. You've convinced me, doctor. You've convinced me that you're dangerous. And he goes to escape and again, (laughs) Ruck just grabs him and tosses him. And you can see that Shatner does a little bit of a jump to help Ruck do it, but it's very small. You can also see that it's a stuntman that gets tossed, but it's still a great, great move. Yeah, he just, but he just picks up Kirk, like, again, like there's no effort whatsoever, not just because he's a big guy, but because he is an android. (laughs) It's Andrea and Chapel, and they are talking. And what she says, which I, I think is so interesting, she says, Why are you unhappy? with Roger again. And here's the other thing. Again, spoiler alert. Andrea, also an android. Andrea, at the end, we learn she is having the burgeoning feelings of love for Roger. So when she says, why are you unhappy? You're with Roger. Well, that's because she loves Roger, you know? Um, And Chapel's tough. She asks, where is Captain Kirk? How can you love Roger without trusting him? And then, why does it bother you when I use the name Roger? Then he comes in. He's like, it, it's clear it disturbs her. So from now on, you will address me as Dr. Corby. And she says, yes, Dr. Corby. I need time to explain and demonstrate. Now, shall we start with Andrea? And I love Major Barrett's performance in this moment. Yes, let's start with Andrea. Dripping with sarcasm. That's great. <laughs> I'm like Dr. Brown, an android. <laughs> Do you think that everyone knew that she was an android at this point watching this? If you were watching it watching the first this time? for the first time, I I wouldn't have suspect necessarily suspected that. Although once you see Brown killed right. or deactivated, I should say, I probably would have suspected that she was probably an android too. Sure. Well, and Chapel has the line. I don't remember an Andrea being with your. She knew Brown. She didn't right. know this guy. The way this scene plays out is so weird. There's so much odd stuff. Corby goes up, he touches her face, and he talks about how remarkable she is, life-like pigmentation, the variation of skin tones. The flesh, the flesh has warmth. There's even a pulse. Physical sensation. 
to which Chapel's response is... How convenient. How, How convenient. convenient. <laughs> okay, here's my question. Yes. Has Android Roger Corby had sex with Android Andrea? No, absolutely not. 100% yes, I think. You think they, you think they did? Absolutely. Why? Well, I think there's several, several clues throughout. First of all, Andrea's in love with him. Um, I think that Roger thinks that he's not, has no feelings for her. Well, here's, here's one clue. So, and this is silly, but, um, but the outfits that Roger Corby and Brown are wearing are exactly the same design as the outfit that Andrea is wearing, except Andrea's has no back and shows a lot of skin. Mm-hmm. If Roger made her, why did he make her so sexy and put her in a sexy outfit if he didn't like want to have a sexy girl with him? Well, okay. So Corby's transfer, he believed, was a complete transfer. Right. He said, I'm the same. Direct transfer all of me. He felt like it was completely him. And you know what? If I was human, and whether I thought I was human or I was really human, if I'm stuck on this planet and and I can design a female to look as pleasing to the eye as, as, as can be, I would make her look exactly like Andrea. So. <laughs> and, would, and if she has soft skin and warm temperature and even a pulse and is an identical and is a woman in every way, and you are stuck in a planet for five years with no contact with the outside world and no real knowledge that you're ever going to get rescued, you don't think you would touch that uh, g- beautiful girl you created? Well, well, if, if, Corby knew that she was an android, but, but you see what, what, so, okay, maybe she, maybe he did. Maybe well, and, he and, did. And let's table this for the moment. And cause there's more clues. I think that that's what happened. Um, and even the way he talks about her. An android is like a computer. It does only what I program. Right. And, so then, so then he tells her kiss captain Kirk now strike him. See, she's just following orders. So if if this Corby, believing that it's the full real Corby and is human and is going to just order Andrea to have sex with him, maybe you're right. Maybe there was something there. Maybe that is one of the reasons. I mean, we don't see the advancement of Andrea's love for Roger until much, much later in the episode. But, but maybe maybe it was there not just because they were together stuck on this planet the whole time, but maybe it was there because they did have physical contact. Well, and the seeds of it, it's like, so if she at the end is going to profess her love for Roger, right? Well, that isn't a thing that just happened in the last hour. The seeds of that had to have been building for quite a long time. And so this moment where she, he, he talks about her, uh, and says, do you think I could love a machine? Andrea is incapable of that. All these lines, she has no meaning for me. There's no emotional bond. If Andrea had the seeds of love for Roger and he's told her, don't call me Roger. You're just a machine. You're incapable of love. I have no feelings for you. That hurts. I think this is it. Because, and I think the only way to interpret this is that Andrea, whether or not they've actually had sex, has romantic feelings for Roger before we get here. She might not know that she does, but they have been building. That, that I believe. That I believe because there, there's no way that she just 
turns around to him at the end of the episode and, and, and suddenly yeah. realizes that she loves him. I think it's been building, it's been percolating, but one thing that actually convinces me of your argument that there was physical contact because when Roger Corby tells Andrea, kiss Captain Kirk, she knows what a kiss is. Mm-hmm. So how and, did she know that? And it's not a, 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 a sibling-like platonic kiss it's a a romantic kiss it's a romantic kiss so your theory your theory just so we know for everyone here on enterprise incidents is that that there was a point where roger corby and andrea had physical contact that they had sex yes well chapel's line that given a mechanical dr brown and a mechanical geisha would be no more difficult you think i could love a machine did you I think that is exactly what has happened. By the way, do you know, uh, have you heard of the hard consciousness problem? No. Okay, so uh, it relates totally to what this whole episode's about. The hard consciousness problem is basically that we all know we're conscious. I'm conscious. I'm aware of me being Steve. But we can't really define consciousness. We don't know how, we don't have a way of saying what it is and what it isn't. So like an example would be, is like you imagine a building has a sprinkler system. And if there's a fire, the sprinkler system senses the fire and it turns on the sprinklers and it puts on the fire. So the building just protected itself. Is that building conscious? No, it's just mechanical. This thing happens, then this thing happens. You imagine a super sophisticated computer that that protects a building's environment in all sorts of different ways. But is it conscious? No, it's just been programmed and it's doing its programming. You imagine a plant and a plant, its leaves turn towards the sun and its roots head towards the water to survive. Is it choosing to do those things or is it just doing those things? At what point does something become conscious? An earthworm, an insect, a butterfly, a bee. How much are they choosing things and how much are they mechanically doing them? By the time we get up to higher mammals, you know, like I know my dog has emotions. Like I can see when the dog is happy and I can see when the dog is scared. Is the dog conscious? Is a orangutan conscious? And so, and this particularly relates to AI, where we're talking about like, oh my God, what if the Terminator is created and it tries to destroy the world? You know, is that at what point is Andrea or Ruck or Brown or Roger conscious? Mm-hmm. When does that happen? How do we define it? And how do we know it's happened? Because if I could program a computer to respond to you exactly like a human would respond, that doesn't mean the computer is conscious. It means that my programming was really, really good. Okay. Now let me ask you a question. In terms of consciousness, there is there is definitely a moment. I mean, I know we're, we're getting our head up ourselves with this episode, but there is definitely a moment towards the end of the episode when Andrea becomes conscious. I think so too. And, and at that moment, she doesn't know how to deal with her emotions. Yes. Like she, she, she doesn't know what it means to be conscious. Like she's, she's having conscious, conscious uh, feelings and emotions and she's aware, she's probably aware of her own mortality at this point. But what she does with those emotions She's she's not equipped to handle them, which is why towards later in the episodes, she does a couple of things that are questionable. And of course, Kirk, again, he's observing all of this. If these mechanical things have no feelings and perform only as you program them, then why did Brown try to shoot me? Why did he kill two of my men? There are many things I don't understand, Doctor. 
And then Roger says, and this is a setup for a perfect cut. I'll answer all of your questions. Now. Cut to, on a music sting, a weird, funky-looking, plaster of Paris-ish something dummy gets put onto a device, and Roger and Christine come into this room, and Roger says, This is how you make an android. (laughs) And the camera comes up, and we see that also on this weird round device on a slab is naked Captain Kirk, his private parts conveniently covered by some this big thing holding in place. And this whole thing rotates, so Kirk is into frame. Chapel looks at him. There's a huge music sting, and that is the end of the act. So Shatner, once again, was told that he had to shave his chest. (laughs) So he shaved his chest in The Enemy Within. He shaved his chest for Charlie X. And Sherry Jackson was was interviewed, and she said, Gene Roddenberry felt very strongly that the captain of the Enterprise should not be hairy. (laughs) <laughs> I just think it's so funny. These, 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 I, there's certain, you know, like obvious that uh, Rob and Laura had to sleep in separate beds that you could never hear the sound of a toilet flush, you know, all these weird TV rules and the, just the like men can't have hair on their chest. It's such a, <laughs> such a funny one. It's act three. We start right where we left off. We're looking at this platter. It starts spinning. That thing spins faster and faster. And obviously this is, they slowed down the the frame rate so they could later speed it up and post because otherwise Kirk would throw up, Shatter would throw up all over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I often wondered about that. If I was lying there and this thing started spinning, I could only take so much yeah. before I would, I would feel nauseous. Um, and now Chapel is starting to suspect. She says, Roger, what happened to you? When I sat in your class, you wouldn't even dream of harming an insect or an animal. And we're spinning faster and faster until it's going super, super fast. And then it slows down. And now, instead of Kirk and some weird dummy, there are two Kirks. So perfectly identical that Chapel can't tell them apart. Choose, Christine. Which is your captain? I don't know. And now Roger says, we've done the physical, and now it's time to do the mental. That is when Kirk starts to yell out, mind your own business, Mr. Spock. I'm sick of your half-breed interference Mind your own business, Mr. Spock. I'm sick of your half-breed interference, do you hear? Mind your own business, Mr. Spock. I'm sick of your half-breed interference. So this is Kirk's way of sending a message to Spock by saying something that Kirk would actually never say to Spock. This is such a perfect Kirk moment. His intelligence, it's how it's its the guy who did the Corbomite maneuver. It's the guy who could talk to gods. It's that it's him being so far ahead. And it also points out to me why Mud's women is so weak because this character who is so smart is totally absent in that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... After this happens, she looks at Kirk, and then we rotate the platter around, and he says, now meet an android. And the duplicate Kirk, the android Kirk, smiles in that charming Kirk way. How do you do, Miss Chapel? And now we're at a table. Andrea brings Chapel in, gives her some weird, colorful alien food, and then in comes Kirk. And he sits down and says, in a very charming Captain Kirk way. I'm more or less on parole, I understand. 
<laughs> and he is really sensitive to Chapel's predicament. I'd hate to be torn between commander and fiance myself. And she says, I, I know it doesn't make sense. What he's done may seem wrong, but he is Roger Corby. So she still has faith in him at this moment. Unless something's gone wrong with his mind. This is where I don't think the script is right. Is her next line is, you're forgetting how well I know him. He's as sane as you or I. And I'm like, no, in the previous scene, you said the Roger Corby I knew would never do these things. So this moment, that line doesn't make sense. And partially this might be multiple people writing the script. Partially this is, you know, we're rewriting on the day and you don't always, it gets harder to track all the different ideas. Like, a, like for me, when I teach screenwriting, a basic idea is you always check in with your characters. Where are they emotionally in this scene? And that tells you whether or not they would say this particular line. Th that line, I do not think Chapel would say. This next line is so good. And this is the element I don't think they follow up on. Nurse, if I gave you a direct order to betray him. And she says, no, please don't do that. That's a great tension within a character, but it never actually comes up. You know, mm -hmm. that's where I think, and when we get to the end, we'll talk about it. And Chapel's not hungry. She pushes her food away and tells Kirk, go ahead and eat. And Kirk says, Android, don't eat, Miss Chapel. It is so great, that scene, because she has no idea. And if you're watching this episode for the first time, you don't either. I mean, he's Captain Kirk. He's wearing his uniform. And the way Shatner plays it has a sly grin Androids don't eat Miss Chapel. And it is chilling. You're yeah. like duped. Like you've been duped. Chapel has been duped. Here's my question for you, Scott. Okay, tell me. Why does Android Kirk ask if Christine would betray Roger? Because, okay, well, I thought that was, well, that was all an act. Yes, absolutely. I just thought of that as a way for the Android Kirk to really throw her, to make her, not that I, I didn't think that she suspected at all that that was I the agree. Android Kirk when he walked in the door. But maybe now that I'm talking, now that we're talking about it, maybe the Android Kirk said that because Corby was trying to test Chapel, test her loyalty by having the Android say that. Exactly. Because Android Kirk's not going to say anything he's not programmed to say. Mm -hmm. And Roger is worried about Chapel because he has to get this thing done. This is a test created by Roger to have his Kirk ask the question that he wants to know the answer to. Will you betray me? And then we see Captain Kirk walk in in that, that jumpsuit that the right. uh, uh, colonists, you know, that they wear, the scientists wear. And he sits down at the table, you know, Corby comes in right behind him and, oh, it's just such a great scene. Like it's one of those great gotcha moments because it really worked like that, that moment really worked and it still absolutely holds up. And, 100%. and, and the great uh, dialogue, you know, the way that, you know, the split screen is done. So it's one thing if like, the balance on each side of the screen is exactly the same so they can do the split screen. But the way the, the way the shot is done on an angle, the Android Kirk is a little closer to the screen than the real Kirk. They still shot it perfectly. Like you, you, you can't tell that it's a split screen at all. So just for people out there who want to know, the way you do this split screen shot is you shoot the scene twice. So you lock down the camera, 
you shoot one side of the conversation, then no one touches the camera. That Kirk goes off, changes his costume, sits down again, shoots the other side of the conversation, and then you essentially cut the film in half through an optical and layer them together, and now it looks like two people are talking to each other. It is technology that goes all the way back to the silent era and milius and those kinds of things all it's very simple and you just have to not touch the camera and it it works easily the conversation that the two kirks get into about eating and kirk is trying to test the android about his his memory and this is where we find out that james t kirk has a brother named george samuel kirk and uh and there are things that the android knew that the original Kirk kind of got, you know, that his memory wasn't quite right on. Well, wait, is is it that Kirk misremembered or was Kirk testing the android by saying something intentionally false to see if the android caught it? I always well, the, thought it was the latter. Yeah, the android caught it. Right. Oh, right. right. But is it that Kirk made a mistake or is Kirk doing it on purpose? I always thought he was doing it on purpose. That he messed oh, up see. on purpose as a trap. He said he was being transferred to Earth Colony 2 Research Station. No, Captain. He said he was continuing his research and that he wanted to be transferred to Earth Colony 2. You might as well try to, I think, a calculating machine. In this conversation with the two Kirks, there are some things in here that are, that are really interesting to me that are contradictions. So one of them is that Roger is continually just saying that this is an exact duplicate. He even has your sense of humor, but then he's also saying ways that he's not the same. For instance, androids don't eat, so they're not the same in that sense. When Kirk asks him about the brother and the mem- and we're testing the memories, Roger says, you might as well try to outthink a calculating machine. Well, Kirk's not a calculating machine. Therefore, this android Kirk is not like Kirk. And the question I had Okay, Kirk can't outsmart his Android version. Could his Android version that has all of Kirk's memories beat Mr. Spock at chess? Ooh, well, well, now we've seen Kirk beat Spock at chess. Right. So, so if, well, oh, that's a great question. Because I would argue that it is the human, unpredictable, not calculator. Spock's a cal- more of a calculator than Kirk. That's right. not the skill that allows him to beat Spock. It is the inventiveness, the humanness that allows him to beat Spock at chess. So this idea to, to me that they're an exact duplicate, they're not. And but in both times, the both times that we've seen Kirk and Spock play chess at this point, we're in where no man has gone before in Charlie X. And in both cases, when Kirk won, Spock referenced Kirk's illogical approach yep. to chess. Exactly. His next move should have been the rook. Yep. And then in Charlie X, he goes, as usual, your illogical approach to chess has its advantages. And that, you're right, that human element is missing from the Android Kirk. And the Android Kirk would either lose or it would be a draw. Yeah. Well, and then, and this is exactly what the next moment is about, because then Roger says, By continuing the process, I could have transferred you, your very consciousness, into that android. Again, we're getting this idea of what is consciousness. He says, I could transfer your soul. And he's talking about immortality. Can you understand what I'm offering mankind? Programming. Different word. But the same old promises made by Genghis Khan. 
Julius Caesar, Hitler, Ferris, Maltuvas. Yeah, I love when they go when they go one step further. You know, <laughs> it's like uh, uh, same thing they used uh, uh, Ramses, Hitler, Lee Kwan. <laughs> you know, it's uh, that's a classic classic Star Trek move. Absolutely, yeah. Or or uh, yeah, the Constitution of the United States, fundamental Declaration of the Martian Colonies, yeah. the Statutes of Alpha Three. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. It's great. That a human converted to an android can be programmed for the better? Can you imagine how life could be improved if we could do away with jealousy, greed, hate? It can also be improved by eliminating love, tenderness, sentiment, the other side of the coin, Doctor. Here's what I connected this to. Enemy Within, Kirk saw what happened to him when the negative parts were taken out. So he already knows that the thing that Roger Corby is saying, we could take out greed and all this stuff, he already knows that doesn't work because of the experience that he has personally had. And, and he's also already seen himself, his own body outside of himself. So where someone else might've been more freaked out, Kirk's kind of been there before. So he knows things about what Roger Corby is talking about that literally no one else in the universe knows because of the weird personal experiences he's had. Very, very well put. I mean, but yeah, it, you know, if, you, if you're looking at things chronologically like we've been doing, then, because of where Kirk has been, he's more informed to address the consequences of what Corby is now bringing up. Absolutely agree. Yeah, you can't just take out the the, the bad parts. That's who part of who we are. And then yeah, this he actually moment. should have said. He actually should have said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Yeah, Roger, I've been there. Been there. Doesn't work. <laughs> um, uh, and of course. I know that they weren't thinking this when they wrote it. I know that this is something that we're adding to it, but it still totally works for me. And the next one too, because Corby says, I'm offering you a practical heaven, a new paradise. Where have we heard things about practical heavens? Well, with the Telosians, that's what they were offering to Christopher Pike. Um, uh, Gary Mitchell was going to create his heaven, his, his garden of Eden. Like this idea, these are things that we've kind of dealt with and we've already rejected. And of course, while this whole conversation is going on, Kirk's hands below the table are pulling out a little bit of, maybe that's why they have this old fashioned furniture is so it could be tied up with ropes because that's what Kirk is working on getting. And then the more we hear about Corby's plan, the more evil it sounds. They must be strongly infiltrated into society before the Android existence is revealed. I want no wave of hysteria to destroy what is good, right? You're starting to sound like a real, real bad guy. In the earliest versions of the story outlines, it was not yet established that Corby was an android. And in fact, when Bob Justman and Roddenberry and Herb Solo, the executive in charge of production, when they were reading Robert Block's story outlines and his, and his drafts, they were concerned that he was plagiarizing himself because there were story elements of this script, of what A Little Girl's Made Of, that were taken from some of the short stories that Block wrote for science fiction magazines. Mm. And also from an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea that he didn't write, but there were very there were a lot of similarities and they were concerned about plagiarism. So they made some changes to it. And it was actually John D.F. Black who suggested to make Roger Corby an android, and that would sort of 
diffuse the issue and there would be no question that this is this is not the same as those other stories as, at all. It's so funny. Again, we're in this thing where a thing was done for a practical reason, but it's way better. Oh, absolutely. It's so much more interesting than Android. And, and he's asking for Kirk's help. And Kirk says, well, you already created your own Kirk. I created him to impress you, not to replace you. And Kirk, man, it's the same thing he does every time. I show a little bit of friendliness or weakness or something in order to cover up the fact I'm about to attack you. He says, <laughs> I'm impressed, doctor, but not but the, way, the you way you think. <laughs> Jumps up, gets that rope around Roger Corby's neck, tells everyone to stand back or he ki he'll kill them, gets out the door and runs. And Corby says, Ruck, protect. So Ruck is going after Captain Kirk, but then Chapel goes after Ruck. And again, they really make this the set look a lot bigger than it probably actually was. Yeah, because I'm sure it's just like two little, it's like three little pieces probably. So Kirk goes around to a part of the cavern where he's able to hide behind, behind the cave wall, actually. So then he needs a weapon. So he grabs a stalactite. Now, stalactites, stalagmites. The difference is a stalactite hangs from the ceiling, the stalagmite comes up from the bottom. So he, he grabs a stalactite and- By the Ruck, way, you know, you know how I always remember that? How? Stalactite has T for top. Oh, okay, good to know. Yes, that's a great way. Word association always works. So he grabs a stalactite and he can hear that Ruck is looking for him. But he hears Chapel's voice because Ruck disobeys Corby's order and he mocks Christine. Captain Kirk, where are you? And Kirk is standing there with a stalactite. And did you ever get a good look at that stalactite, at that it's, prop? It's so, so styrofoamy. It's just so, like, first of all, it's like an eight inch diameter stone that Kirk can somehow break. It's kind of ridiculous. It's clearly super light. It's yeah. also, it's also, if you if you really get a good look, okay, this will really take you out of the episode, I'm sure, if you go back <laughs> and watch it again. But if you really get a good look, especially when, when Kirk is standing there holding the prop, it looks like a giant dildo. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a giant dildo. And there's actually some guy on Twitter who his Twitter handle is Captain Kirk's dildo. <laughs> and his avatar is of that scene where Kirk is standing uh, with the prop in his hand. But if you go back and watch that episode I, again. I literally, I literally am looking at it right at this moment. And you have, Scott, you ruined Star Trek for me. You just, <laughs> I guess, yes, that is, that is what that looks like. And absolutely. I mean, I always thought, you know, that looks a little like, you know, something interesting. But then Kirk does something completely lame-brained. Christine, is that you? Okay. I always thought that. I, and literally in my notes, I wrote, that was dumb. That was dumb. <laughs> but then I watched it. I actually think he knew that it was Ruck. Because when Ruck gets to the corner and is about to come to Kirk, Kirk swings at him blind. So if he thought that was Chapel he wouldn't be swinging. I think he was trying to lure Ruck into a trap. That's my version of it this time. I'm curious what other people watching, did Kirk do it on purpose or was he being dumb? I thought that he really thought that it was Chapel. Right. And 
when he said, Christine, is that you? And she did not respond. Mm. That's when he realized, oh, darn. Oh, uh oh, it's not her. That's when I think he realized that it was actually Ruck. And that's why he was waiting until Ruck got closer mm. and just blindly sure. would swing the, uh, the prop at him. But I actually really did think that he thought initially that it was Chapel. And then mm-hmm. as soon as like, as soon as I said, you know how sometimes as soon as you say something, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> I think that he said, oh, Christine, is that you? And then, oh, damn. I think that's what happened there. By the way, watch how Ted Cassidy moves throughout the whole episode, but particularly in the sequence. He moves great for particularly for, because you think of Lurch. Lurch was extremely stiff. And yet the, he physically is just putting in a really great performance, I think. Mm-hmm. And of course, Kirk trying to hit him with his little dildo stalactite uh, is totally, <laughs> totally ineffective. And he gets knocked down and now he's hanging by one hand off a cliff with an unbelievable low angle looking up at Ruck, looking down at him. There's a huge music sting and we have reached the end of the act. And that is what we call a cliffhanger. 100%. And we come right back into the same moment in Act 4. Kirk is hanging there, and Ruck is basically ready to let him fall or just kick him off. But Ruck has this look on his face where he's thinking, he's processing the moment, and he decides to save him. Like, he's second-guessing, like, Like he's confused. He's having a conscious moment. And the big timpani drums are playing in the score and Ruck leans down and lifts Kirk up with one hand, which I'm not entirely sure how they did it exactly, but man, they make Ted Cassidy look like he's really, really strong, which I think he is really strong. He is. I mean, but I think just because of the the wardrobe, like the way that – you know, the wardrobe wasn't form fitting and made him look bigger than he probably actually right. was, but still a massive guy. And you're right. The way that Ted Cassidy moves throughout the episode in some kind of a position where he's always like on guard or ready to attack, or he's like, the, like especially in the beginning of the episode when he was going after the two security guards. Wait, let me ask you, why did Ruck save Captain Kirk? Why did Ruck save Captain Kirk? Didn't he say like to, Kill you would be illogical? No, he. I think he later says keeping you alive is illogical. I think Ruck saves Captain Kirk because Christine's order kicks in. Oh, I see. Is that he wanted to kill Captain Kirk. He was trying to kill Captain Kirk. And then right at the moment, it's like, you know, Secret Directive 4 and Robocop. At the last possible moment, he can't do it. And he saves his life. Because I think Ruck is, you know, we're talking about this idea of consciousness. Ruck is also an emerging consciousness. There is a lot of stuff going on with him that it's particularly in scenes up to come that are really interesting. The presence of Corby and his, you know, his team, which is basically just Brown, has sort of brought something to the fore within Ruck that he'd never experienced before, that he never, you know, quote unquote, felt before. So, so Ruck and Andrea and, and even Corby are processing more emotion than their circuitry can handle. We're back on the Enterprise, and so is Captain Kirk. I guess everything is okay. When Kirk walks by Spock, and Spock goes, Captain, like, he's calling out for the captain, and Kirk is not 
paying attention to him at all. He walks right into his quarters to, to get the information he needs to bring back to, to Corby on the planet. Dr. Corby has considerable cargo to beam aboard. I'll have to go over our destination schedule with him. You're going back down with the command packet? Mind your own business, Mr. Spock. I'm sick of your half-breed interference. Do you hear? And clearly, Spock is thinking, what the hell was that? And I love Nimoy's response. Yes. Very well, Captain. And then this is what I think is really interesting about this moment. So first of all, Kirk's self-programming to his Android clearly worked. He somehow put that in the front of Android Kirk's mind. But the next thing he says is... You look upset, Mr. Spock. Is everything all right up here? It's a complete shift in emotion from your half-breed interference to you look upset. I think that shift, as much as this horrible racist line, is what clues Spock in that this oh, is not Oh, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And when Kirk exits his own quarters, Spock is lingering in Kirk's quarters because he's thinking... <laughs> Something is really wrong here. And then he alerts security to have a team meet him in the transporter room after the captain has beamed down. Now, originally, the way the scene was written in earlier versions, what tips Spock off that something is wrong is that when Kirk beamed down to the planet, he had his phaser with him. When he beamed back, he did not have his phaser with him. That was enough to make Spock suspicious. But... The producers and the writers, they said, nah, I think we can punch that up a bit. So then it was decided to add in this scene, which far and away is a much, much more effective tip uh, and a, a more alarming moment because Kirk resorts to this ugly racist comment to get a reaction out of Spock so that Spock knows that something is wrong. And that is the difference between adequate, passable writing and really good writing. Absolutely. Is, is because it totally makes sense. Kirk went down with a phaser. He came back without a phaser. There's no emotion connected to it. You've just observed a thing. In this version, you had Kirk being really smart, coming up with an interesting thing, which we, seen it the first time, don't understand why he's saying these things. Then... We hear the Android Kirk say it, and we discover, oh, that's why he said that thing. So we as an audience are engaged, and we get to watch an interesting character moment with Spock. That's way more interesting than any of the other stuff. Um, and then Android Kirk reports to Corby. Made a good beginning, Captain. Thank you. And then Android Kirk says a very interesting thing. I felt quite at home on the Enterprise. Yes. A unconscious, non-sentient creature wouldn't say that. Is that... I felt at home is only something that someone alive with emotions could say. So this idea, what, one of the things I find so interesting is that there isn't hard lines in this episode between consciousness and not consciousness. There are gray areas of how conscious. Well, also, as the episode progresses, we see that the androids in this episode are becoming more and more human. Yeah. With the consciousness that they're having, with the, the conflict that they're having in processing emotion, the more they are processing, the more conscious and self-aware they become, the more human they become. And that brings us to the conversations you and I have had before when discussing Blade Runner. Yeah. Just because you are a replicant with a four-year lifespan 
If you have memories, if you have emotions, if you are aware of your mortality, doesn't that make you human? Like, what does it mean to be human? Do you have to have flesh and blood to be human? If you have wires and circuits, but you are conscious, doesn't that make you human by definition, by, by the, uh, uh, or even just by a, a, a metaphorical sense the what it means to be human and all of the characters, uh, secondary characters, Ruck, uh, Andrea, and now, and eventually Corby are all, and, and even the duplicate Kirk because of that line that you just said, yeah. pretty soon after his creation, the Android Kirk is already feeling something and that right. makes him human. Well, and just like in Blade Runner, one of the other questions is even if you, the memories you have are not your own, because Sean Young, her character has been implanted with memories that are actually from the niece of Rydell. What's his name? Is that his name? Uh, Tyrell. Tyrell. My dyslexic brain reversed that. Uh-huh. He, um, but in, in this case, we have Kirk Android who has the memories of somebody else. And so even though those aren't his memories to some degree, including this weird racist comment, they are his you know, and this also relates to where we're going to go in a few scenes with Roger Corby. Right now, Andrea's come in and Kirk asks her to kiss him. And she does. And then immediately goes to slap him because apparently she thinks Kirk, that's what Kirk's into. She's kind of into some kinky stuff. Well, well, when Roger, when Corby instructed her, he said, kiss Captain Kirk, now strike him. So Kirk says, kiss me. So Naturally, the follow-up order to that was to, for him to get struck. But when she does that, he grabs her and he forces her and says, kiss me. And he plants a kiss on her that was extremely forceful and very, very passionate and full of so much emotion that even she feels the emotion and she doesn't know how to react because she doesn't know how to process a feeling that she is having. And Sherry Jackson actually said, William Shatner was his sexy, charming self. When he was kissing me and we pull apart, not only is my lipstick off, but my lips are swollen. He really kissed me. Wow, that's great. Um, well, and what's fun, funny too is like this is Kirk. I think in a weird like when I first was looking at it as we were going to talk about it, I went, oh, "This is kind of weird, a dude forcing a kiss on this woman." And is this Kirk the womanizer? And then I'm like, "No, this is Kirk the trickster. This is part of his strategy." I think he is might even be smarter in this episode than he is in Corbomite because Corbomite he pulls one great move. This. Throughout the whole episode, he is pulling interesting moves, and this is one of them. And here's this is the capper on why I think Andrea slept with Corby. She's very flustered through all this, and she says, No, I'm not programmed for you. Which means she is programmed for somebody else. For Corby. For Corby. Because I think the emotions that she's having isn't, it isn't that oh, I'm feeling things for this weird guy that's kissing me. It's that this weird guy kissing me is making me realize I feel things for this other guy that actually I want to kiss him. In my opinion, after she was created, the first time they had 
intimacy in some ways, she was an android, totally unemotional. But the more emotions that Roger shared with her, the more she became human. That's what I believe. The more you talk about this, the more you convince me that, yes, I, I absolutely believe that there was a relationship between Andrea and Corby. You know, I don't, maybe Corby thought he would never get off the planet. He was still thought he was human and had companionship. And of course is gonna make his companion to be as beautiful as can possibly be. Never expecting that Android companion to feel anything other than following an order. Right. Like, so if Andrea was programmed for Corby and now she is feeling something for Kirk. So when a, an Android, when a computer has conflicting feelings, it doesn't know what to do with them. It doesn't know how to process them. So now Andrea is extremely confused. Well, and remember this too, there's another element, which is that she's, if she loves Corby, who just showed up? Corby's true love. Chapel just showed up. So there's all sorts of things that are messing with Andrea. And she, very flustered, she leaves the room. Kirk tries to head out after her. And man, there is Ruck again. Pushes him. And what's amazing to me, again, amazing to me about Kirk, he just played this game on Andrea. And without missing a beat, having been manhandled by Ruck, he immediately starts playing games with him. Emotion, Ruck. You disapprove of Miss Chapel's orders to save my life? To maintain your existence would be illogical. And then he starts to go, and Kirk asks why. Can't your memory bank solve a simple equation like that? Kirk is, is doing something he has done time and time again in the original series. He's messing with the computer. Yep. He is trying to reason with a computer, use the logic that computers use against them. And what he ultimately pulls on Ruck was that Corby is trying to, wants to destroy him and that he's, Ruck is protecting him. Like, how do you protect something that's trying to destroy you? And Ruck in uh, an enlightened Eureka moment says, that was the equation. Like he hits him. What am I doing? Brilliance on the part of Kirk, as usual. Well, what I think is interesting and what I think is fundamentally different about this particular version is that when it's with Nomad or with Landrew or with whatever the world is hollow and I have touched the sky one, he is destroying those machines. That's not what's happening with Ruck, is that he is reminding Ruck of something that Ruck and the other androids a million years ago figured out, which is this one line. Existence, survival, must cancel out programming. And it's a full epiphany. It's so powerful, this idea, that he's actually squeezing Kirk almost to death because of this thought. And what this moment is, this is consciousness. 
is that absolutely the rejection of programming. You know, I was talking about the house with the sprinklers and the computers and that they're only doing things because they've been programmed to do it. The moment you say existence cancels out programming, you care more about your own life than you do about following the programming. You have achieved full consciousness. So uh, unlike Landrew and Nomad that he destroyed, he actually gave Ruck the gift of consciousness. And just at that moment, when Ruck achieves the gift of consciousness, when he achieves full humanity, and Corby comes in and interrupts the moment. You brought him among us. We had cleansed ourselves of them. Now you bring the evil back. Ruck is about to attack Corby, and Corby fires his his old school phaser, and the last of the actual native androids of the planet are gone completely. I don't know how I felt as a kid, but watching this last time, I felt really bad. I did too. Oh, I always felt, I always felt bad. I always liked Ruck. That moment that, like you said, that Eureka moment when he achieves true consciousness, true humanity to have that moment for just a moment before he's, you know, like from yeah. existence completely. It's tragic. This episode yeah. is tragic. Yeah, absolutely. And then Kirk, man, he plays the same game. He acts more tired than he really is. And he starts to walk away. And then all of a sudden he turns on Corby and wrestles with him for the phaser. Corby's arm gets caught in the door. Um, and the arm comes out. And Chapel screams because we see that Roger Corby is also an android. We see the skin peeled away on the back of his hand. And we see the machinery and the circuitry and the electricity. All this time, he was an android. It's almost like a Twilight Zone kind of ending. Yeah. One thing I find interesting is that whenever you predict the future, the technology is only based on what technology you know at that time. Like I know that Walt Disney said we should have called Tomorrowland yesterday land. Yeah. Because it's always going to be based on how we think things work. In the when they're to make turning Kirk into an android, the controls are all these big knobs and stuff. And when they try to do the stuff with his brain, it's almost like patch cables from an old style operating board or an old style soundboard. And now when we see Roger Corby's arm exposed, I think those look like little transistors. Um, you know, transistors are developed in Bell Labs in 1959. It's just seven years before this. And so for them, transistors were really high tech. And for us, they're really, really low tech. So what happens next, I don't care how many times I watch this episode, that the, the next moment is always so chilling and so haunting. And this is also because of the lighting and also because of the performance of Michael Strong. It's still me, Christine. Roger. I'm in here. The performance is great. The lighting, oh, it's a, such a, like, wow. Even he, even he's an android. And But at that moment, I always felt like, no wonder he's doing what he was doing. If he was human, if Corby had survived as a human being, would he have done all of this? Would the human Corby have come up with this grand master plan to turn people into androids? Corby was turned into an android because he was dying. And the only chance that he had left was for Ruck to put everything into an android. But as a result, he lost part of his soul. 
He lost the human part of, of what it means to be human. Like the other androids that we see with Andrea and with Ruck achieving consciousness, they're kind of confused by how to deal with those emotions. But Corby is one who always saw himself as human, but there was something missing. And what was missing was, was the, hu- the humanity of being human, the emotion and, and the ability to reason that what he was doing was just a really bad idea. Have you heard the argument, the idea that actually what's happening in Star Trek is every time they step into the transporter, they're killed and a new version of them is created that's a duplicate? I did not know that, no. Yeah, Who said it, that? <laughs> uh, and I've heard it a few times. And because and, the basic idea is like, okay, you're taking the entire body apart and then reassembling it using energy somewhere else. And it's like, and the thing I think about Corby is he says his soul was transferred. Like if I transfer something from one hard disk to another hard disk on my computer, that doesn't mean that the first hard disk no longer has a soul. They both have the same information. If I transfer everything from your brain into this Android, that doesn't mean your brain is emptied, you know? And so it could be that no, Roger Corby died when his body died. And this is a duplicate that thinks it's Roger Corby, not necessarily that this is Roger Corby. Still the same as it was before, Christine. Perhaps even better. Are you Roger? Andrea, someone in the outer junction. And I love that Kirk goes, Spock, he got my message. He knows exactly who it is. Yep. And so she grabs that old fashioned laser and she walks out the door and who does she see but Android Kirk? And she says, I will kiss you. Oh. She's puzzled. You will not? It is illogical. So now, She's dealing with the human emotion of rejection. Yep. And boy, does she react. (laughs) She just kills him. And now we're back with Roger, who's trying to convince Chapel that he is who he is. I'm the same. Direct transfer. All of me. And that's when Andrea enters and says, Captain Kirk freed himself. I destroyed him. And of course, Kirk knows that he hasn't been destroyed. And Roger knows that Kirk hasn't been destroyed. And she realizes that she shot the wrong one and says, I'm not programmed for alarms. And Kirk, now he has the full argument. She killed the android, Corby. The same way you killed Ruck. Is this your perfect world? Your flawless beings killing off one another? You know what I thought about when he said that? What's that? Absolute power corrupting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nope. Yep. You're right. Aren't you doing exactly what you hate most in humans, killing with no more concern than when you turn off a light? Corby says, you know, I am human. Ask me to solve any, and then like solve any, that's a computer. Uh, Equate, no, 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 that's not it, because that's what a computer does too. Transmit, wait, no, no, that's a machine too. So he may think he's human, but he can only go so far because in the end, no matter how great the programming is, no matter how great the transfer of his mental capacities, no matter how great the transfer of his soul are, he will still not fully be human. So, so but does that, but that, does that make him any less human? Because he is conscious of his mortality, but he's just not, he's just not there enough. But does that mean that he's not human? Well, uh, this word human is a tough one because of course he's not human. He's an Android, but, Conscious, a conscious sentient being, 
I think he is. Yeah. This is, by the way, where I think is the weakness of the episode, is that it was always very dramatic to me as a kid, the equate, transmit, mm-hmm. like, but I think, first of all, there's nothing about Roger that says this should happen to him now. He's been completely smooth through this whole thing. And to now suddenly, because his arm is injured and he's under some pressure, talk entirely like a computer, it just doesn't make sense to me. More importantly, is the line that Android Kirk asked Chapel, Nurse, if I gave you a direct order to betray him. Please, don't ask me to make that choice. That should be the end of the episode. It should be. And it's so interesting because to me, so many of these great episodes we talked about have incredible supporting characters with full character arcs, like Dr. Daner, like uh, Bailey, like Styles in Enemy Within. All of these characters have an arc, and at the end, they realize a thing. Well, here we have Chapel, who's a perfect opportunity to have a great arc. And yet she is not, she is passive at the end of this episode. If she had been the one that ended up with a gun on Corby, if she made the final decision, that would be way more dramatic. And it would be particularly more dramatic if Corby doesn't say this transmit thing, because that makes the decision easier. Well, I think the ending is still very, very effective because it's even good. just, yeah. you, know, you know, even watching it again, basically being, you know, saying, asking to do anything a computer would do. So he's not there. He's realizing right. in, a, in a fit of rage, he, he screams, I am Roger Corby! But he knows that he's not. It, it's such a, such a great conflict that he doesn't know what to do. Well, and in, what's so interesting is that Kirk says, if you are human, give me the phaser. And he does give him the phaser. Hmm. He does. And just like Ruck made the choice and became sentient in this moment, Corby is making a choice just like a human would. But the problem isn't solved because Andrea still has the phaser. And he says, give it to Kirk. No, protect. And this is where she completely falls apart because we go from protect. To love you. To kiss you. And she turns to Corby and he says, you cannot love. You're not human. I think what's so interesting and what makes this particular version of consciousness and what does it mean to be conscious and what is human and what isn't things that of course we did talk about in Blade Runner is that there's so much gray area here because you have Andrea and Ruck coming up the scale towards consciousness and you have Roger coming down is that Roger thinks he's fully human only to realize he is less than human. And yet I feel how you feel. They're all sentient beings. Andrea is, Ruck is, Roger is. They're in slightly different places. And yet, in Roger's mind at this moment, they are all machines. Absolutely. That's what's so tragic. So she leans in to kiss him, and it is Corby who pushes the trigger on the phaser to wipe them both out of existence. So... You get to XO3 in the beginning of the episode. You have Ruck, you have Brown, you have Corby, and you have Andrea. By the end of the episode, they're all gone. And when when they disintegrate, and of course, Chapel is devastated. It was Spock who got the message. And Spock comes in, and he's relieved that the captain is there. And he says, where's Dr. Corby? The line that Kirk says... 
Dr. Corby was never here. It's an amazing line. It's such a great line. It's a haunting line. It accentuates the tragedy of this episode. Because in the end, the four representations of that planet, one of them from the old ones, like they're all gone. Yeah. Like that these these machines that were supposed to be perfectly logical and 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 Corby's version that, that we could put our our human souls into these things and live forever. And yet we couldn't even make it through the end of the episode without killing ourselves off. It's tragic. What, what, it's also a good lesson. What just occurred to me, which I can't believe I never thought about before. So we've done 10 episodes of those 10 episodes of this adventure show, a good percentage of them end in tragedy where no man has gone before ends in tragedy. Charlie, Charlie X, X ends mm-hmm. in tragedy. Um, the man trap to some degree ends in tragedy. Yep. And this one ends in tragedy. And in each of these cases, we won, we survived, but we're not feeling that great about it. And right. again, I think about Bonanza and Gilligan's Island and Dragnet. Dragnet, I mean, I'm, there were episodes of Bonanza that were sad, but not like this. I mean, you know, four out of 10 episodes. And we could even say that uh, the end of the cage isn't like a woohoo, this is awesome ending. You know, that's so half of our episodes are kind of sad. At yeah, the end. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know, it wasn't until Gene Kuhn came on as the as the day-to-day producer halfway through the first season, they just, they started having those humorous endings, you know, where they, they, they crack a joke and all laugh and head, head off into, into warp speed. But no, this is definitely a, a tragic episode and it is a haunting final scene that we were see Kirk say, Dr. Corby was never here. And we're back on the enterprise and Spock is annoyed with Captain Kirk <laughs> because of the term half-breed. You must admit, it is an unsophisticated expression. I'll remember that, Mr. Spock. The next time I find myself in a similar situation. This episode has so many themes in common with other great episodes of Star Trek, like you said, Nomad, uh, Changeling, uh, Return of the Archons, For the World is How When I Have Touched the Sky, The Ultimate Computer. Mm. But it is also an episode that stands and holds up alongside some of the great other shows that deal with a similar theme about what it means to be human. And by that, I'm referring to the reimagined version of Battlestar Galactica, or even like we said, Blade Runner, but even a film like AI, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. that the notion of she, what um, it her. means to be, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the notion of what it means to be human is a tale that, keeps getting repurposed throughout science fiction because it is a great question and that will always stir provocative conversation because there's no right answer. But the answer of what it means to be human is if you're having the conversation, there is something worthy there that deserves to be human. I think that, I think those are great points. And I think, you know, this is, why the what I what is called the hard consciousness problem is the hard consciousness problem is that we don't come to an answer. We don't know what it means to be us. It's hard for us to see it. And this is the thing that science fiction does so well. And this is why Star Trek is such good science fiction is that it's 
Yes, this is a fun adventure story. Yes, there's some good action sequences. Yes, we have a cool alien android guy. Yes, Kirk does some smart moves to get himself out of the situation. All that's totally true. But it also, if you are so inclined, gives you stuff to think about. And this is why, in particular, watching this time, is I went like, oh, Roger is a lot closer to Andrea than we might think, which means Andrea is closer to human and Ruck is closer to human. And what does that mean? And how do we give, because when you talk, you know, we just did Star Trek six and we, there's the line about human rights and inalienable rights is that to me, what it comes down to is in a weird way is respect is that I don't, Scott, I don't know that you're conscious there's no way right now for me to be absolutely certain that you are not a very well-designed automaton, that you're just a brilliant Android running on his programming. But I work on the assumption that you're human. I treat you like a human. I treat you how I would want to be treated. And I, I'm assuming that all the people out there listening to us also have consciousness. And I think you should use that consciousness to visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for Enterprise Incidents. You can follow the show on Twitter at Enter Incidents. You can follow us on Instagram at Enterprise Incidents. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Leave your comments on YouTube. We love interacting with you there. Leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. It is the most important place that's going to help to get the show out there. But also tell your friends. If you have other Star Trek friends, tell them to check out Enterprise Incidents. And Scott, if people wanted to reach you, how would they do that? Well, before I get to that, I just want to say again how important it is. If you've been listening to Enterprise Incidents all this time, you know, we're 10 episodes in. We got 70 more to go. It is so, so crucial, just like Steve said, to please check out our podcast on Apple iTunes and make sure you review, you write a review for our iTunes version and make sure you give us a rating. So make sure you review us on Apple iTunes. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance and definitely hit me up on Twitter at MovieMance with a TZ, MovieMance, and let me know what you thought of this episode of Enterprise Incidents. And make sure, like Steve said, make sure you share Enterprise Incidents with other people because we are celebrating the 55th anniversary of Star Trek with the ultimate deep dive podcast on the original series. We want this to be the final word and we want this to be the best word. And we want even the most diehard fan of the original series to enjoy and, and appreciate this fresh new perspective and brand new insight into these episodes. There are many, many, many reasons why these episodes hold up as well as they do after 55 years. And you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram at SR Morris One. And if you're interested in exploring other stories about artificial intelligence, you could do a lot worse than subscribing to the cinephiles where we've talked about films like terminator one and terminator two as scott mentioned our incredible conversation about blade runner and the granddaddy of them all perhaps the scariest ai in history the computer how from 2001 a space odyssey and you know who our special guest was on that episode scott mance oh and one other thing you know there was one question that came up over and over and over again in the course of this episode and that was what really was the relationship between Roger Corby and Andrea. 
Did he treat her just as a machine or was their relationship something more intimate? That is a question we're going to put up on our Facebook page and we would love to hear your thoughts. So Scott, we found out what little girls are made of. Where is the crew of the Enterprise going next? Well, we are going from one sort of mad scientist to another. Next week's episode on Enterprise Incidents is Dagger of the Mind. Another episode from the first season that just has gotten better and better over these years. So please join us for the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. <laughs>